the risen Christ, our hope. And Thomas, you're absolutely right. This verse here, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, Paul says, and so is your faith. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And what did Jesus say? We're in John chapter 2, and Jesus answered them, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. This would prove his authority. So the resurrection is vital. It's crucial. In fact, the professor of Yale for over 40 years, an author of some 20 volumes, William Phelps, he says this, the historical evidence for the resurrection is stronger than for any other miracle anywhere narrated. In fact, back in August of last year, I went through all of these theories that people had and that they posed as to why there was no resurrection, and we debunked them one by one by one by one. They don't stand. And if you would like, you can go back in our live stream feed and find that. But this morning, I'm going to look at something similar. How many witnessed Christ's resurrection? Was it just one or two, a few people on the outskirts? Was it, you know, a case of my word versus uh, another person's word? No, there were many. And we're going to try and march through pretty quickly here. I'm borrowing a lot of things this morning from a Sab School class, actually, from last quarter that Jeremy Pettit did. And I said, I need those, those notes from your Sab School class. That was excellent. First off, a hundred soldiers witnessed this. Well, how do we know that? Well, let's first look at Matthew 27, 62 to 63. It says, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, so this would have been the Sabbath, after Jesus was crucified, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver, isn't that interesting? They're calling Jesus the deceiver when we know rightfully who the deceiver is. Now that deceiver said, after three days I will arise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the deception will be worse than the first. Interesting how they're fearful of what will be, which is exactly what happens. So in order to make sure that doesn't happen, we have to secure it extra. We have to do extra things. To make sure this will never happen. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. And they did. Interestingly, the efforts of the Jewish authorities to prevent the resurrection only resulted in more positive, conclusive proof of the reality that Jesus was raised. Desire of Ages 778 says this. The priests gave directions for securing the sepulcher. A great stone had been placed before the opening. Across this stone, they placed cords, securing the ends to the solid rock and sealing them with the Roman seal. It says the stone could not be removed without breaking the seal. A guard of 100 soldiers, that's where I get the, the number from, 100 soldiers was then stationed around the sepulcher to prevent it from being tampered with. The priests did all they could to keep Christ's body where it had been laid. But they weren't able to keep it in the grave. That's the good news. And so how many witnessed his resurrection? Well, I'm going to go ahead and put 100 soldiers, our witness, 
to all of this. The second one I'm going to put up, there are two Marys, Mary Magdalene and one referred to as the other Mary. Do you remember these accounts? We're going to go quickly this morning. John chapter 20, verse 15, Jesus said to her, this is Mary Magdalene, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She supposed him to be the gardener and said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Notice when he used her name, called her by name. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbani, which is to say, teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. John chapter 20, verse 17. So that's Mary Magdalene. But then he appears to both Marys. This account is in Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, after the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other mother came to see the tomb. So we have two Marys here. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook with fear of him, 100 of them, and became like dead men. Continuing, but the angel answered and said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And then continuing in Matthew's account, verse 5 and 9, and go quickly and tell his disciples. And as they went, it says, Jesus met them, saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to Galilee and go to Galilee and there they will see me. And so we have the hundred guard. We have the two Marys. But now the two Marys are to go to tell the disciples that Jesus is going to appear to them. So we're only adding to the number, right? And you recall this part of the story too, where Jesus appears to the 12 disciples. In John chapter 20, verse 19, says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, so this is Sunday night, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Can you imagine? After a horrible Friday, after a very long Sabbath, after most of Sunday, but then things and rumors are hearing, and now Jesus appears in the room and says, peace be with you. They see it with their own eyes. Now we know Thomas is not here just yet, but he will come later. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, if you keep reading this account, Thomas joins them about eight days later, the verse says, and he too gets to see his hand and his side. And he says, my Lord and my God. And so we could add the 12 disciples to the list. And you may be thinking, now, wait a second, wait a second. Judas was no longer part of the 12, so there's only 11 at this point, And that would seem to be true. But you also need to remember in Acts 1.23, where Matthias is chosen, there are some prerequisites. 
And you might want to go back and review. One is a person that was with us since Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. A person that also witnessed his resurrection. And thirdly, someone who witnessed the ascension. So we're not just grabbing somebody else to fulfill the place that Judas left. We're grabbing someone that has been with us in this journey all along. He saw Jesus baptized. He witnessed his ministry. He saw him resurrected. And then he saw him ascended. Later, Paul will refer to the 12 disciples that witnessed Jesus' resurrection. And so if it's safe for Paul to say it, then I feel comfortable adding 12 more to our list. So we have 100 soldiers plus two Marys plus 12 disciples. We're up to 114 witnesses. Wouldn't that be sufficient? But there's more. We have two travelers on their road to Emmaus. You remember them? It says in Luke chapter 24, two of them were traveling to Emmaus, and Jesus himself drew near, but their eyes were restrained. They didn't know that it was him. And you know the story well. They start asking questions and and so on, and, and as the conversation unfolds, Jesus, it says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is one of the places that I wish we had more detail. I wish we had bullet points of everything Jesus said about every prophecy. Now, we can study the prophecies. They're still there. We can go back and find them. How many did he use? Which ones did he use? But we know it was convincing because as we continue on, their eyes were eventually opened and they knew him. And they said to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us while he opened the scriptures to us? They got to see Jesus, convinced he was the Son of God through the Scriptures. And so we need to add the two travelers to our list. So that gets us up to 116. But then we're going to take a big jump here. 502 plus followers, what is that? Apostles, James, Paul. Now we're, we're shown, and I'll show you the verses here, we're shown that there's 500 followers Apostles, these are, are people that have a firsthand witness of Jesus and his ministry and go to spread the gospel. How many are they? We don't know. Was it 70? Was it 100? Was it 150? But we also know of James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul. So maybe this number is more like 600? I don't know. Let's look at the verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. It says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Caiaphas, which is Peter. Then by the twelve. Yes, they're on our list. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. So we better add 500. Of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And the verse goes on. After that, he was seen by James. This is the brother of Jesus, not the disciple of Jesus. So we have to add one more. And all the apostles, eyewitnesses of his resurrection, according to this verse, then last of all, he was seen by me also. This is Paul, as by one born out of due time. And you might say, when did Paul see the resurrected Jesus? Do you remember his Damascus Road experience? where he sees this bright light, he is thrown down from his horse, 
Well, let's just read it, Acts 9, verse 3 to 5. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the response, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Friends, the only adequate cause for such a total reversal in the life of Paul was that he had seen the resurrected Lord. Further evidence, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And the answer is yes. Galatians 1, 15 and 16. It says, God called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. And so, yeah, we have to add Paul to the list as seeing the resurrected Christ. But there's another group. And this group is a very fascinating group to me. We'll call it the special group. And it's only mentioned by Matthew. It's only in chapter 27 in these few verses, 51 to 53. And it's only described as many. So what number do we put down for many? But let's, let's look at this verse. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is on the cross. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened. Now notice when Jesus hung his head and died, the graves were opened by the quake, the earthquake that hit. But we have to read this verse carefully. There's people are not resurrected when he died, but when he was resurrected. Notice the verse. And it says, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming up out of the grave after his resurrection. And they went to the holy city and appeared to many. And so Jesus hangs his head, he dies, there's an earthquake, graves are opened, if you will, but when Jesus himself is resurrected, there are those, there are many bodies of the saints that are resurrected too. Many have wondered about this passage. How many? What happened to them? I'm so thankful for the spirit of prophecy, Desire of Ages 786 gives us a little bit more insight. It says, during his ministry, Jesus had raised the dead to life. He'd raised the son of the widow of Nain. Yes, I remember that. The ruler's daughter. Yep. And Lazarus, of course. But these were not clothed with immortality. After they were raised, they were still subject to death. But those who came forth from the grave at Christ's resurrection were raised to everlasting life. They ascended with him as trophies of his victory over death and the grave. A foreshadowing, if you will, of more to come. The quote continues. It says, these, said Christ, are no longer the captives of Satan. I will redeem them. I have brought them from the grave as the first fruits of my power to be with me where I am, never more to see death or experience sorrow. Wouldn't you like to be one of the many in that group? Someday you will be, by God's grace. And it says, they went into the city and appeared unto many, declaring Christ has risen from the dead, and we be risen with him. 
Thus was immortalized the sacred truth of the resurrection. You want proof? Proof upon proof upon proof upon more proof? More witnesses upon more witnesses? How many witnesses do you want? Early writings. This is a very fascinating quotation. I had not seen this before. 184, it says, When he arose a victor over death and the grave, while the earth was reeling and the glory of heaven shone around the sacred spot, many of the righteous dead, there's the word again, many, obedient to his call, came forth as witnesses that he had risen. Those favored, uh, risen saints, came forth glorified. They were chosen and holy ones of every age. From creation down even to the days of Christ. Who might that have been? From creation all the way to the days of Christ? These are the chosen, these are the holy ones of every age? Who had they learned about as little kids? And now in the city they see this individual walking around saying, this is who they are, I was raised. Then it says even this, those risen ones differed in stature, some being more noble in appearance than others. I was informed that the inhabitants of earth had been degenerating, losing their strength and comeliness. They differed in stature. Now we know Adam was much taller, as was Eve. And now there are some of these people as part of the many. We don't know who, but some taller in stature are going into the city. They don't look like us. Their faces, their, their, their physique, they don't look like us. We've never seen anything like this before. This is pretty incredible. Would it be a witness of the power of Jesus Christ? Would it be first fruits of what is to come? It says, Satan has the power of disease and death. And with every age, the effects of the curse have been more visible and the power of Satan more plainly seen. Those who lived in the days of Noah and Abraham resemble the angels in form, comeliness and strength. That'd be interesting to be sure. And so we have to add this special group to our list. So how many is on our list? I have 617 plus. That doesn't include anybody from this special group. And there's many. How many is many? It's not three or four. I don't think it's a dozen. Are we talking a hundred people? A couple hundred people? Could it be that with that and the apostles we're looking at a list that's close to a thousand? Maybe far beyond? Can you imagine being in Jerusalem at that time? The proof is overwhelming. Ephesians 4 verse 8 tells us, When he, Jesus, ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Here Paul is quoting Psalm 68 verse 18. So when Jesus went to heaven, these individuals, this many, this special group, ascend with him. He's not going by himself. Again, can you imagine being part of that group? Ascending from this earth with Christ to heaven. Can you imagine what that would have been like? You know, someday we won't have to. It won't be identical, but it'll be extremely similar. There's a powerful quotation I'd like to share with you. It is long, but I just have to read it to you. If you go to a Baptist church, you expect a Baptist sermon. If you go to a Methodist church, you expect a Methodist sermon. If you come to an Adventist church, I'm going to give you an Adventist sermon. Is that okay? And it's probably about a page long, and I put the words up. If that overwhelms you, just imagine. But it gives us incredible insight what it would have been like to be part of that special group and what took place in heaven 
when Jesus went back there. It's found in Desire of Ages, page 833. Write it down. Go home and study it for yourself. Mark it up. I was reading it through this morning. I, I just got emotional reading it. It said, all heaven was waiting to welcome the Savior to the celestial courts. And as he ascended, he led the way, and the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection, they followed. And the heavenly host, with shouts and acclamations of praise and celestial song, attended the joyous train. They are ready to rejoice, you can just feel it, as they drew near to the city of God. The challenge is given by the escorting angels, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Joyfully, the waiting sentinels respond, who is this king of glory? This is all quoting from Psalm 24. This they say not because they know not who he is, but because they would hear the answer of exalted praise. And here's the answer. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your head, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Again is heard the challenge, who is this king of glory? For the angels never weary of hearing his name exalted. The escorting angels make reply, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Then the portals of the city of God are opened wide and the angelic throngs sweep through the gates amid a burst of rapturous music. There is the throne, and around it the rainbow of promise. There are cherubim and seraphim, the commanders of the angel hosts. The sons of God, the representatives of the unfallen worlds, are assembled. They're all there. The heavenly council before which Lucifer had accused God and his son. The representatives of those sinless realms over which Satan had thought to establish his dominion. All are there to welcome the Redeemer. They're eager to celebrate his triumph and to glorify their king. But he, Jesus, waves them back. Not yet. He cannot now receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe. He enters into the presence of his father. He points to his wounded head and his pierced side. The marred feet, he lifts his hands bearing the prince of nails. He points to the tokens of his triumph. He presents to God the wave sheaf, those raised with him as representatives of that great multitude who shall come forth from the grave at his coming. And he approaches the Father, with whom there is joy over one sinner that repents, who rejoices over one with singing. You see, before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father and the Son had united in a covenant to redeem man if he should be overcome by Satan. They had clasped their hands in a solemn pledge that Christ should become the surety for the human race. This pledge Christ has fulfilled. Upon the cross, he cried out, It is finished! He addressed the Father. The compact had been fully carried out. Now he declares, Father, it is finished. I have done thy will, O oh my God. I have completed the work of redemption. If thy justice is satisfied, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. 
and the voice of God is heard, proclaiming that justice is satisfied, that Satan is vanquished, Christ's toiling, struggling ones on earth are accepted in the beloved. And before the heavenly angels and the representatives of unfallen worlds, they are declared justified. Then quoting Psalm 85, verse 10, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And then I love this part. The father's arms encircle his son. And the word is given. Let all the angels of God worship him. And with joy unutterable, rulers and principalities and powers acknowledge the supremacy of the prince of life. The angel hosts prostrate themselves before him, while the glad shout fills all the courts of heaven. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Quoting Revelation 5, 12. Songs of triumph mingled with the music from angel harps till heaven seems to overflow with joy and praise. Love has conquered. The lost is found. Heaven rings with voices and lofty strains proclaiming blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. That's what it would have been like to be part of that special group, to witness this incredible point in time. And we're given this insight. Yes, Jesus' coming was pivotal. His ministry was pivotal. His death was pivotal. His resurrection was pivotal. His intercession on our behalf with his own blood is pivotal. But today we celebrate a very significant peace. He's not in the grave. He's risen. And he gave his all for you and for me. I don't know about you, but I long to serve a God like that. And this is what the resurrection means to us. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy to receive power over death. Worthy to receive the riches of his children. Worthy to receive wisdom and strength, honor and glory, for he has conquered and overcome in this great controversy. Yes, love has conquered. The lost is found. And so today, in connection with this, we're participating in the communion service, where we remember his life and his death, his sacrifice for us and his body and his blood. And we also remember his resurrection. That in him, there is hope. In him, there is life. That in him we too may have victory.